The outbreak of Ebola in West Africa continues to claim thousands of lives with a real risk of it spreading to neighbouring countries. The virus was co-discovered in 1976 by Professor Peter Peart, who is now the director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Peter talked to us about the current outbreak, his views on the international efforts to control it, and how he first helped to identify this deadly virus. In 1976, I was in training in clinical microbiology. I just finished medical school. And one day in September, we received blood samples from a Belgian nun in what was then called Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, who had died with a clinical diagnosis of yellow fever. So we did the usual things for, you know, how to isolate the virus in the old days, which took quite a while and on cell lines and... Uh, uh, injecting it in mice and so on. And to our big surprise, what came out of it was a virus that didn't look at all at anything we knew. Under the electron microscope, it uh, looked more like a worm, but then, of course, much smaller. And in these days, only one similar virus was known, and that was Marburg virus. We got the news from WHO that a major epidemic with a very high mortality rate was happening in, in Zaire and we were instructed to stop all investigations because our laboratory was not equipped to work with dangerous viruses. So we sent the virus to CDC in Atlanta, Centers for Disease Control, who confirmed that this was a, a new virus. And then you went there to Zaire? The next step was to stop the epidemic because it was clear that the thought was about a few hundred people had, had died, and uh, also to figure out how this new virus was uh, transmitted. Because normally when you go into an epidemic, you know exactly how uh, the virus or the, the pathogen is, is transmitted, and, and you know what to do. In this case, we had no clue. So I went with um, a team of far more experienced people from CDC, from Institut Pasteur, and Congolese uh, colleagues to the epidemic zone in the equator, in the northern part of, uh, of Congo, in the equator, in equatorial forest. This was my first time ever in Africa. I was just 27, so I had zero experience. And um, what do you do uh, when you arrive in a situation like that? First of all, uh, try to stop the epidemic, which was not too difficult then because people had figured out that something fishy was going on at the hospital and so they had abandoned the hospital and that was absolutely uh, important in terms of stopping the epidemic and they had put everybody in quarantine going back to the smallpox days that was in the collective memory and what we did was trying to define the epidemic then in terms of three questions and that's time place and person and on the base of that you can already draw some conclusions time and I was seeing uh, how is this epidemic evolving, is it slowly growing, is it still expanding or is it coming down and from the shape of that curve you can already get some idea of transmission. Two, place, where are the people who are infected and who died with Ebola and it turned out that the, the closer you were living to the hospital the higher the risk was of acquiring Ebola infection. And thirdly, person, who are the people who get it? You do then something very, very simple, and that is you divide everybody up in by age and sex. And what we found was that there were more women than men infected. There were no children or hardly any. 
which is interesting to see because that nearly excludes a vector, an insect uh, transmission. And that particularly in the age group between 20 and 30 years old, about 50% more women uh, had Ebola and had died from it than men. Since we were a bunch of men, it took us a, a couple of hours to figure out what's the difference between men and women at that age. And of course, women can get pregnant, certainly there. And uh, when we had seen that, what we did was we matched the hospital records of the antenatal clinic consultation and our observations in the villages. And indeed, the uh, surplus, the excess of women uh, at that age who came down with Ebola uh, infection, all nearly were all pregnant and or had just delivered and had consulted uh, the antenatal clinic. So now we wonder what is going on there. And so to make a long story short, what we found was that every morning the mother superior, this was a nun's uh, hospital, would distribute five needles and syringes to this clinic. And nearly everybody who came there got an injection with something. And that's how it really exploded. And then another thing we found was that about a week after a funeral of someone with Ebola, you would see several members of that family who would come down with Ebola. And so we said, okay, something is going on at the funerals there, and, and that is uh, still the case now today in West Africa. It's through touching the body of someone who just died from Ebola, and when that corpse is extremely contagious, that then gives rise to secondary epidemics. So that was the story. Are you surprised now, looking back at ev everything that you and, and your team found out back then, how the situation's still as shocking and problematic as it is today? But to be honest, I didn't fully realize how important all this would become. Of course, it's, uh, I was thrilled. I mean, it's 27 years, you know, it's kind of uh, the ultimate kick for a uh, a clinical microbiologist to discover new pathogens. But it was particularly for me the kind of detective work unraveling how this virus was transmitted, how it was spreading. That was an uh, extremely exciting time. It's only uh, later on that I realized that, uh, you know, I, I was making history, uh, to use a big word. But I was also the youngest member of the team by far. Many people who were far more experienced had second thoughts before going to, to such a, an epidemic. The epidemic in West Africa is the 25th known outbreak of Ebola infection. It's the first one in West Africa, and it's by far the largest. It has already killed more people than all other epidemics together. And it came as a surprise to me, indeed, because all previous epidemics uh, were quite limited in time and in place, were around one center, affecting usually fairly small villages or small towns, and would die out basically after fairly classic isolation and quarantine methods. In this case, it's different for many reasons. I think it's, uh, as I describe it in an editorial in Science, it's a perfect storm. A perfect storm because what you see is a combination of a virus that is hiding somewhere in the forest, 
probably bats, we don't know for sure, and where people are, through growing population, are more and more exposed to, to what's going on in forests, through deforestation and so on. Decades of civil war, corrupt regime, which means that there's no trust in authorities, a completely dysfunctional health system. Let's not forget that in Liberia, there is about one doctor per 100,000 population. And in the meantime, several of them have died from Ebola, just as in about 150 nurses, because they're the front line. We have also a distrust in Western medicine, very strong traditional beliefs in terms of disease causation, traditional funeral rites, which require that the whole family touches the body and has a meal in the presence of the, the, the dead person. And then I should say also a very slow response from both the uh, national authorities and from the international community, from WHO, which declared only in August a state of uh, public health emergency. Fortunately, now things have uh, really greatly improved in terms of leadership from WHO, and, uh, but until then it was basically Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, which was the main actor on, on the ground. And then increased mobility of people. Borders are very porous. They're going back to colonial times and not natural type of borders. And, uh, and that's how it, uh, how it spread then. So do you think that the international community should have done something different? Well, I think we were all far too, uh, too late. And, and, and even today with a much enhanced uh, international uh, support and national response, we're still running behind the virus. The epidemic is expanding. The number of new cases and new deaths per day and per week is greater than last week and, and then the day before. About 50% of all uh, deaths of Ebola virus infection in West Africa occurred the last four weeks. In other words, it's growing, it's growing. And every day, with every day the epidemic is getting bigger, it's more difficult to control it because if an epidemic is uh, confined to one place and maybe affects or about 10,000 or, or even 100,000 people, you can put that area into quarantine, you can you know, have contact tracing and so on. When entire countries, three countries are affected, that's becoming very, very difficult. So the international response has to increase tremendously and there are different needs. One is people on the ground, and uh, in the first place, clinical people, uh, nurses, doctors, uh, because today treatment facilities are uh, insufficient for the number of patients, the number and the, and the beds. Secondly, we need to make sure there's protective gear and training for the local staff, you know, that they're not infected themselves. And thirdly, we need to make sure that people who have Diseases that are normally treated in hospitals are not getting out of hand also because now people are dying from malaria and so on, which normally would be treated there, but the hospitals have been abandoned or fully occupied by Ebola patients. And lastly, also support to the communities under quarantine with food and so on, to the government. I believe that in terms of prevention, communication, contact tracing, that that's not something where as uh, outsiders, as foreigners, we can do a lot. You need to have a, be accepted by the local community. 
you understand, you speak the language, and so on. So this is a whole agenda, and it requires a order of magnitude more of what we're doing at the moment. And I must say that uh, cancelling flights and so on it does, is not helpful. One, WHO recommends against it to close the borders and so on. It, it doesn't work in practice. But also it makes uh, international support far more difficult and more expensive. Why is there still no cure for Ebola after? I mean, you've been working on it for, for decades and, and we see now these experimental treatments that are just starting to be rolled out. Thanks to investments by the, particularly the Department of Defense in the US after the anthrax scare and so as part of a anti-bioterrorism program, a few vaccines have been developed and then also one in Canada and some experimental drugs. But then funding dried up. Ebola up to now has never been a real public health issue. I mean, an epidemic comes and goes and 50 people die and so on, compared to malaria, uh, HIV, uh, maternal mortality, diarrhea and so on, I mean, basically nothing. And there's also no market for it. So there is no uh, investment, and and I, I fully understand that, because there are bigger priorities. But now, because of this epidemic, Jeremy Farrer, the director of the Wellcome Trust, and David Heyman, the chair of Public Health England, and a professor here, and myself, we launched an appeal in the Wall Street Journal and say we must accelerate evaluation of these experimental vaccines and also offer some of these drugs for palliative uh, use because with a mortality rate of 80-90%, you can have other standards for trying out drugs than for something where people don't die of. And my concern was that, okay, there's, with the current epidemic, there is interest in Ebola, but once it's over, we'll forget it and uh, things will remain on the shelf. So I'm, I'm really very, very pleased that uh, WHO is taking leadership and has declared in, uh, through its ethics uh, committee that this is ethically justified, called a meeting to coordinate efforts. The Wellcome Trust and the MRC and DFID have joined efforts to, you know, to fund trials. So things are moving now, but it may be too late for this current epidemic because we still have to go through phase one trials, which means seeing whether there aren't obvious side effects in humans and to uh, have an idea of the dose that has to be given. That's the normal procedure. That's going to take a few months. In the meantime, that gives time to the companies to produce enough vaccines, hoping that it passes through the first phase of tests and then uh, we can do some efficacy trials for the vaccine. For treatment, I think we have some low-hanging fruit, and that is plasma or serum from people who recovered from uh, Ebola virus infection, because classically in an infectious disease, when you recover, you have very high levels of antibody in your blood. And we know from hemorrhagic fevers in Latin America that such convalescent plasma or serum really uh, reduces mortality enormously. For Ebola, this has never been proven, although it has been used in um, 95 on uh, eight patients and seven survived, so that suggests that it may work. And, and that work can start immediately because there are, despite all the deaths, there are quite a few people who survived. So that's work that should start within the next few weeks. 
and then we have other drugs that can be uh, evaluated. But, it, but my view is that it should be given in terms of compassionate use, but at the same time, let's make sure we learn from it so that for the next epidemic, we have more than isolation, quarantine, and that in the affected areas in Africa, that there are stockpiles of vaccine and of drugs that can be mobilized uh, immediately when there's an, a new outbreak. You say that it might be too late for this epidemic. So if, if we don't find a, a vaccine in time, what then happens? I don't think anybody can say when this epidemic will stop. I doubt that it will die out spontaneously because of the enormous number of people who are affected and infected at the moment and the entire countries uh, uh, involved. But I assume that the understanding that this is a, a threat to their very survival is now happening because we, we've come from months and months of total denial, even a strong belief that Ebola doesn't exist, so that control measures will you know, bear fruit ultimately, but we are not there yet.